If you listen to this, you will learn that Deborah Delisle is an amazing leader. As President and Chief Executive Officer of All4Ed, past CEO of ASCD, and was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Elementary and Secondary Education, she provides insights and wise advice from a leadership perspective. Deb and Jeff try to focus on the topics of innovation, underserved students, and working in teams, but they go even deeper than planned. This is an honest and heartfelt conversation, and we are so thankful for this leader chat. Enjoy. Hello, leaders, educators, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jeff Rose. Welcome to Leader Chat. And I feel actually like I am reintroducing Leader Chat as well as myself to you. And the reason is, is it's been summer. And during the summer months, we slow down the Leader Chat process to approximately once a month. The last Leader Chat we had was with Robert. He allows me to call him Bob. Bob Marzano, and that was fantastic about a month ago. And today we'll bring you another incredible leader I'll introduce here in a minute. But first, let me make a couple of comments. Um, the reason I'm reintroducing is over the summer, we have onboarded new Leadership Circle members, well over a hundred of them into our community. This leader chat is a live video session. So our member, uh, excuse me, our guest will join us live and our members who are in the leadership circle, superintendents, their teams, system leaders um, can join us live. If they miss the live talk show that we have called Leader Chat, within a week we send them a link and then they have that video content, which is like this ongoing incredible PD because the leaders that we have in Leader Chat are phenomenal. Leaders that would be very difficult for individual districts to kind of get to and hear from, but we have the capacity to bring these leaders to them and their perspective, which is just this ongoing incredible dialogue that I learn from every week and I know our members do the same. Um, so I want to mention a couple of things. First off, where I'm sitting. Um, our members are able to see me sitting. I sit, sit here in Cognia offices because I am the Senior Vice President of Leader Development here at Cognia, and we really support and manage the Leadership Circle. And we're in Alpharetta in this beautiful campus that I'm sitting in. Also, uh, I'm sitting in one of the studios that we have created for this, and um, I, don't, I don't manage this part. So I, I have this incredible partner. His name's Chris Richard. Uh, Chris is the producer of this whole thing. So I just, I want you to hear from Chris here. Chris, are you there? Hey, Jeff. Okay, so Chris doesn't uh, do a lot of speaking, but you may recognize his voice. So say something else, Chris, about your summer. How was your summer? Uh, summer was good. Nice, warm, lots of pool, uh, pool time, uh, lots of kids running around. So it's a good time. That's great. I didn't have any of that, but uh, congratulations. I'm glad you did. And I, I will say I wanted you to hear, Chris, because if you're hearing the podcast version of the Leader Chat, you hear his voice. He introduces our guests, and you've noticed already he has a way better voice than I do for this. In fact, if he could do the show, it would be a hundred times better. If I could somehow adopt or borrow that smooth, uh, deep voice of his, I would. So, Chris, you know I'm jealous, right? We'll just we'll just dub my voice in. I'll just uh, <laughs> kind of lay it over your yours, and so just your it'll be your mouth moving. It'll just be my voice. It'll be a match made in heaven. Yeah, I I would love to dub other things too, like a thicker head of hair, lots of things <laughs> that I could dub on myself that would make this show probably better. Um, so members uh, that are watching, welcome to the live version. If you miss this, you know, you'll get it within a week. And the other thing about this podcast is within two weeks time, we promote this in a public podcast that we actually do. Um, I'm going to be honest. I think a terrible job like putting out there. We just have it. We don't do a great job advertising it. This year, we're going to kind of lean into that and do a better job because our guests really deserve us to push this out. We have a great site that shows the podcast, but we need to just really, really increase our marketing in terms of 
pushing out the Leader Chat podcast. So you'll see more of that. And by the way, if you listen, you're the best promoters that we have. So please spread the word, rate us, give us a comment. That feels awkward to ask of you. But today, um, we're going to get into it because we have this, this awesome guest that I've been excited and talked with for some time. And she and I have talked about, of course, the leader chat as well as a variety of other things. But we have today Deborah Delisle that is with us. And so bear with me as I read um, a condensed version of the bio. So she is the president and chief executive officer of All for Ed, which is a Washington, D.C.-based national policy, practice, and advocacy organization dedicated to ensuring that all students, particularly those who are traditionally underserved, graduate from high school well-prepared for success in college work and citizenship. Prior to her position at All for Ed, Deb Deborah served as executive director and CEO of ASCD, a professionally com uh, community of more than 120,000 educational professionals around the world. She also served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Elementary and Secondary Education from 2012 to 2015. During that time, she played a critical role in the policy and management issues affecting pre-kindergarten, elementary, and secondary education, and oversaw 86 programs with a portfolio of nearly $26 billion. During Delisle's more than 40 years in education, um, she has served in a variety of roles at the local, state, and federal level. So hear this. Um, a senior fellow at the International Center for Leadership, um, served as Ohio's 35th State Superintendent of Public Instruction. She was a superintendent of the Cleveland Heights University Heights in Ohio City School District. Having She's, had, by the way, had a, a school named in her honor uh, for a lifetime of service to students. So there is a school named after her. Um, I'm going to talk to her about that because that's amazing. And in 2014, she was identified by the National Journal as one of five women in America who influence and shape national education policy. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to, she said it's, it's cool for me to call her Deb. So I'm going to welcome Deb to our screen. Thank you so much, Deb. It's great uh, to see thanks you. Thanks so much. It's so good to be here. Thank you. So um, how, how have things been? Uh, how, was, how, were, how are things in your world? Let's just kind of, you know, thanks for coming, of course, but, you know, uh, it's been a tricky several years. How, how, how are you? Seriously, thank you. I, I'm good. I'm good. It, you know, it's been a whirlwind. Who would have thought three years ago we would have faced what we've been facing? Um, and to that, and I, I just want to give a huge call out and, and applaud, a round of applause to educators who have just been called into service like nothing they've ever experienced before. You know, literally overnight going into virtual learning environments, meeting the needs of kids, going through all of the voices who were second guessing masks, no masks what to read, what not to read, on and on and on kind of thing. So I just, I really, really, really want to say thank you to every educator who has stood by kids and their families and their staffs and been great colleagues to one another during the past three years. It's been amazing. So I, I read your bio and um, I've, I've introduced, I've told people this my about myself after serving as a superintendent a few different places that I've normally been around the block, but maybe even back again. <laughs> but when I, when, I, when I read your experience uh, and exposure to so many educators and children and opportunity to influence uh, dramatic change and policy, it's, uh, it's truly amazing. You have a school named after you and you're alive. And, you know, I, so what did I miss in your bio or what do you want to add to it? Maybe wow. take us back to the beginning. I don't know. What did I miss? Yeah, yeah. So let me just say first, you know, I, even when I get introduced when I'm doing um, talks or, you know, keynotes or whatever, I, I always have to say, I feel that when somebody shares my bio, somebody listening or somebody in the audience is going to comment like, wow, can't that lady ever keep a job? Um, but I've loved every position that I've had. And seriously, I think when you mentioned like what the bio didn't share or what's not covered in it is this incredible, I have just been so incredibly fortunate, blessed, if you will, to have had people in my life who have been incredible supporters of mine, you know, people who believed in me that more than I did at certain points in my time, in certain points of my career. And these are folks who came forward and they suggested, uh, why don't you apply for this position? Or I know that somebody is looking for this particular kind of role. I think it would be good for you. Because honestly, I didn't have 
what I consider to be a typical trajectory. You know, when I became a teacher, it was it was in a second grade classroom in, in Connecticut. And I thought to myself, this is a great job. I loved it. And I could have stayed there the rest of my life. And then somebody says, well, what about this? And what about this? And that's how my career was actually formulated. So it really, that whole trajectory of having people reach back to me actually has really um, opened up my eyes and helped to formulate uh, for me an important tenet in leadership. And that is in order for any one of us to move forward, we always have to reach back and find others who need a belief, a mentor, somebody to reach back to and bring them forward with you. So little did they know that really by reaching back to me and putting me into that role or suggesting I take that role, that they really were formulating my own concept of leadership. Um, and to have a school named after me, it's incredible. I, I was laughing because when I showed up at the ribbon cutting ceremony, a friend of mine, and there were so many wonderful people there. It was in my former school district in Cleveland Heights, University Heights. And um, when I showed up and the ribbon cutting ceremony happened, one of my friends said, um, this is like going to your funeral because everybody shows up who likes you. Nobody's going to be here to harass you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, the best part is I, I'm a lover of M&Ms. I think it's the world's most perfect food. And um, they even had M&Ms with my picture on them. That was a little scary to, to kind of be eating my hat off but wait a minute um, you had m&ms with your picture on the m &M? yes they had m&ms like at the celebration with my picture on it so it just it it totally was a night that just like you know you look back and you think how did i de ever deserve this so it was it was amazing yeah well um out of uh myself and the leaders i know and the the leaders i've talked to as well as on the on our leader chat um none of them have have known from the beginning where they would head right they started something right i started as a fourth and fifth grade teacher you don't you don't know what's next yeah yeah right there's this plan and sometimes it it just kind of it happens right and you yeah you just take a leap of faith one after the other and after reading your bio and being in education for you know 40 years no one would ever think deb she can't keep a job um, they would they would assume that one thing led to another, and you know you're you're probably led by wanting to have an impact, and that's that's how it comes across well, thank uh, you. to me, and probably to everyone else. I think maybe you're just a bit bit paranoid. <laughs> I don't know if I'm paranoid or not, or still feeling like I maybe you know I have this like somebody's going to uncover that that maybe I shouldn't have been the person. But seriously, you know, I, when I went to college, I was a, I was a first generation college kid. Nobody in my family had gone to college. Lived in tenement housing when I was growing up, and um, so when I went to college for I had taken one course in high school that really forced me. I really was enamored with the concept of psychology and understanding how people think and how they react and what their environment says to them or how that shapes them, et cetera. So I went as a college, I went into college as a psych major. And trust me, I had absolutely little, if any, college career counseling. That just didn't exist in the school in which I went. Um, and obviously being in a family who had not gone to college, everything was very new to me and to them. Um, and I went, when I went to college and I started talking about psych as a major, I realized it was what I wanted to do with it. I would have had to go to graduate school and finances were a reality. That just was not going to be. So my roommate's mom was a teacher. And for some reason, she knew I volunteered in the community and she suggested I change my major. It's somewhat embarrassing to say I didn't give it much thought. I thought, okay, you know, I can graduate and get a job. And I've never looked back, and I thank that woman to this day for suggesting it, sort of this kismet of the world, like, right? Um, so I didn't have much guidance, as you can tell, but it's really propelled me to ensure that kids, especially those who are first generation or living in um, economically disadvantaged means, that they have options and that they're well prepared to follow an option of their choosing as they leave grade 12. Um, and that just really has propelled me all along of thinking about um, I think I was limited in my choices just because I didn't have that. I didn't have a cadre of people around me suggesting, you know, perhaps this is a career you'd like to pursue or even in, if I was still a psych major, that this is a way you can fund that education. And it, it, it happened that way. But again, as you say, oftentimes we don't really think about where we're going to go next. And so I remember uh, clearly when I was um, being pursued to be the state superintendent of Ohio, 
And I was a superintendent of local district at the time, uh, right outside of Cleveland. And I loved that position. It was probably my most um, satisfying one, if you will, being so close to kids. But I, uh, I, so I was down to one of the finalists and I had to go to the governor's um, residence one evening to interview with the governor and his wife, Governor Strickland. And I called my mom, my dad had already passed. And I called, I'm gonna get teary eyed when I think about this. I called my mother and I said, can you believe it? This girl, this girl is going to the governor's office. I'm sorry for getting emotional about it, but- Don't be sorry. One of the, and one of the things I think about is how much she and my dad worked for me to have a better life, to get out of that housing and to not struggle you know, to make ends meet all the time. And I'm always grateful to them. And my mom was so proud. And she's like, oh, you know, she believed in me like my other mentors, you're gonna get there. And so it's propelled me that to recognize that every kid, every kid in America needs an advocate. Every leader needs somebody who says to them, you can do this, you can do this. And now, and then eventually to get to the White House, wow. Yeah. You know, I always say grammatically incorrect, who would have thunk? Like never would I have thought. So I never, um, you know, I, when people believed in me to give me a role, a leadership role, I wanted to honor them all the time. I wanted to be able to say, you know, I'm going to do the best job for you. We may not agree all the time, but we have to agree that kids are central to the work that we do every day. And especially those kids who are historically underserved. So my whole career has been spent in working with kids who, were pretty much like me, not having a whole lots of options available to them. And and I have found kids who were way worse than, than the situation I had, kids who struggle in their families. Fortunately, I had parents who supported me along the way. You know, hearing you talk, now, of course, it's an incredibly touching story, um, being that it's, it's personal. But the other thing I heard you say is that um, the, the goal is for, for our kids through the educational system to come out with uh, choice yes. as opposed to um, a, a lack of options due to a lack of skill or a lack of exposure. If our students can graduate, graduate, of course, the goal doesn't have to be, in my opinion, um, that it's, it's college or the, it's that they get to choose because they have the skill set and the wherewithal and the confidence to be able to do that, right? And so um, if that, that, when I hear you talk, I remember that word that, no, the goal is not just graduate in this, it's graduate and they have choice. Mm. You know, uh, if they have that skill, we've, 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 we've met our goal, right? Oh my gosh, yes. And so, if somehow, some way that becomes the target, um, and there's a lot to that target, right? But the yeah. point is, a student should graduate with the ability to know that I can pursue what I want, and I have the skill set and the path um, and the support to do so. Um, oh my God, a absolutely. I feel like, uh, we, you know, we're walking the same pathway here, you know, when I think about it, so often, um, people will say to me, so what's the purpose of education? And my thing is, the purpose of education is to give kids hope every single day, every day. And yeah. I think about this new school year, some have already started and some will be starting in the next week or so or after Labor Day. And I think your job is to give kids hope every single day because that's what fuels kids. And, you know, kids need, you never know, and we all know all of people will say, well, you never know when you make a difference. It's amazing to me now to look back and I'll get a note from a student or, you know, I, I had a student who wrote a book and um, I, when I was teaching sixth grade, it was a language arts teacher and she wrote a book and in the foreword, she put a thank you to me for letting her write underneath the spider plant. I don't remember the spider plant <laughs> hanging in the window, but, you know, you think about kids don't, Kids don't celebrate sixth grade because they memorize the states and the capitals. No. They no. celebrate the individual who gave them the space to write, or they celebrate the fact that the kindergarten teacher went to their first varsity soccer game in high school. They remember moments and people and characteristics, right? And this whole notion of, um, of kids choosing their futures is so vital. I actually learned it from a colleague friend, Susan Enfield, who's a great superintendent. And yeah, she I talked know her. about I know her that. Well. Yeah. And she talks about that all the time. And I was struck by it because 
um, I'm, I'm always on this campaign to get rid of this notion of the achievement gap and call it an opportunity gap. Because to me, an achievement gap, people too often will say it's the, it, the blame goes back to the kid, right? I taught it, they didn't learn it. I gave them an opportunity, they didn't show up, all of that. When opportunities, we have to provide opportunities for every student that we want for our own kids. And now that I want for my grandson, right? I want those opportunities. So I've always, when I walk into schools, think about, is this school good enough for my own kid or my grandson? Because if the answer to that is no, it is morally, uh, just really morally irresponsible of me or anyone else to allow that school to be okay for other people's kids. So when I was listening to Susan recently talk and she was talking about kids um, creating the future of their choosing, thought that is so right because it's opportunities that set kids apart. If they're not given the opportunity to, uh, to engage in a dual enrollment class, for example, at a high school, then they don't think about well that credit can apply to college or if they're not given an opportunity to think about um what are ways that i what are uh, opportunities for me at the local hospital to volunteer and perhaps it's where i want my career maybe to get credit for it in high school if they don't have an opportunity to participate in certain musical productions or in art classes that all stifles their opportunities that they have presented to them upon graduation from high school so this whole notion of giving kids hope and giving them opportunities, it's just, it's like how I want to round out my career here. It's just so vital to me. So you're really getting me going and eventually I got to ask you some other things, but I, you know, I have to make a comment on this because, so opportunity is one thing, but the other thing I also heard, even in your story of this, this, this person thanking you for allowing you to, to, to write under the spider plan or whatever that was. <laughs> Um, that's that's opportunity, but it's also touching on the concept of relationship, right? It's that quote that people aren't going to remember, right? What you what you told them, right? They'll remember, or even what you did. They'll remember, you know, how you made them feel. So yeah. when you think back to the educators that influenced you, and those that you influenced, the kids that you influenced, it's not because of the way you delivered content. That's not what they they remember. Like wow. She told me some really good stuff. That's not it. It's that, you know, they remember that they were cared for. And if, if somehow we can help people understand, even our educators that are overwhelmed and stressed, that regardless of what they feel they have to deliver, even in the format in which they do, um, if they just know that if they can make kids feel cared for and give them opportunity, it is, it, I mean, it can transcend a lot of other things in education, yeah. right? And it seems uh, like that's a simple kind of uh, recipe, but boy, is it accurate um, in my opinion. Now, your jobs, you know, you, you look at, uh, you, they change the way uh, you see education in some ways. I mean, they did for me. Like when I was a teacher, I saw it in one way, uh, principal or when I, even I moved from state to state, I started seeing things differently. And the way I see education now, now that I'm no longer in the trenches as a superintendent, I see it differently, right? Mm -hmm. I'm exposed. I actually have more time uh, to actually lean in and read and learn um, as opposed to poor educators now who are working, you know, X number of hours a day. And if they try to read, they're going to fall asleep. Um, but I see it differently from, from your current perch what do you see as some of the really critical trends that we um either should be paying attention to or you would assume that we're going to very soon yeah um several wow several come to mind um and i want to say on the front end that it, somehow we've tried to divide out education right now pre-covid and in mid or hopefully post-COVID, right? Sure. But many of these existed for a long time. But what COVID did was to shed a, a laser beam almost on, for example, one of the primary issues that I see still continuing is in, in inequity in education. And that existed before, but now COVID put a real spotlight on that, right? Um, and even though the graduation rate has increased to, I think it's about 86, 87% of kids graduating from high school within four years, that seems like a great accomplishment. But I would always say that even if your graduation rate is at 98%, it's not a consolation if your 
kid is not in that 98% if they're in the 2%, right? right? And that that 86% of, of kids graduating in four years from high school, it tells an incomplete story. Because once you dig into it, you realize that more students are graduating, but many of them are lacking the skills needed to, to, to really succeed in college or work or even in life. Um, we've, we have found in All for Ed, and we'll, I know we'll talk a little bit more about our work at All for Ed, but nearly 70% of entering students at public two-year colleges have to take remedial classes. Yeah. 70%. Do you know what that does to them from a time frame, from a financial issue? And this is to master material that they should have learned in high school. And I think the business community has reported out the last data piece of data that I saw was 82% of employers report that recent high school graduates have at least some gaps in preparation for typical jobs in their company. So this whole issue of um, preparation and, and what are we preparing for other than, and I'll this will be a little bit of a, a nasty comment on the overreaching effects of um, too much testing in schools mm -hmm. is that we have we, we're teaching to the test where you know we're reporting out scores that really are impacted by uh, socioeconomic conditions in school districts and in communities and we're reporting out those scores so it relates back to what you talked about um, in terms of relationships people are, are you got to get to this you got to get to this chapter you got to get to the next page when in fact some kids just need to believe in themselves first and that takes a lot of work on the front end. Um, I think, you know, an, another big issue that we have to face is the funding of schools, particularly because it impacts the resource equity issue. We have a, a tremendous gap in resource equity across this country. Um, and we, we found it out most recently during COVID, it brought it to light immediately. You know, the digital gap matters. And it's startling to think these days about kids without connectivity. So at All for Ed, um, and it's on our website if, if people choose to read it, uh, we actually did a study and analyzed data early on during COVID because you recall that schools were really pushed to uh, turn into virtual academies, if you will, uh, learning environments overnight or within 48 hours. But at that time, almost 17 million students, 17 million students had no connectivity, none but schools were supposed to transform overnight into those virtual learning organizations. And 3.6, it was 3.6, 3.7 million household lacked even one device putting kids at great risk of falling behind and not being engaged. So we are spending, we have some dollars now to catch up on that, but we have to keep playing with that issue. We've gotta be sure that kids have the connectivity and the resources that they keep up with other kids, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I'll add to that because not only this connectivity, um, this this was not just a, a COVID dilemma because as we move forward. So uh, recently, yesterday, I had a conversation with uh, we did a we had a uh, what we call a solution circle with about nine superintendents, and the the issue on the table had to do with the ongoing teacher and staff shortages, right? Yeah. So we know that that is going to continue. And we also know that there's potential solutions and opportunities that all involve some form of technology, all involve some new ways of how we deliver content um, and even create connections that will entail the need for connectivity. And if we don't continue to pursue a level of equity as that relates, we will only increase the opportunity gap that you're describing right so Absolutely. i mean this is this is not a covid issue this is a this is like a how education will work in the future issue mm -hmm. um and so anyway i, I want to know about all for ed to tell tell our members i've learned a lot about it but tell our members more about all for ed um they can go to your, the website and so forth but give it give it a narrative that uh and maybe as if a bit beyond the website yeah so thanks and i think you introduced it partially in my um in my bio or in my introduction we are based in washington dc um and we like to think of ourselves or we are quoted as being a national policy practice and advocacy organization it was really started uh, more than 20 years ago uh, by the Le by the leeds family and who had great vision and, and placed a high level of importance on education, particularly as a mover out of poverty 
as a way of a social justice, education being a social justice issue, and even more importantly, education as being um, the catalyst, if you will, for, for kids to live out their dreams of a, of a better life or a, of an enhanced future for themselves. So we're really dedicated to ensuring that all students, particularly those who are traditionally underserved, graduate from high school well-prepared for success in college, work, and citizenship. So we do spend a lot of our time on policies. Um, that's what it was developed as originally. Um, we've served in a rigorous capacity to ensure that equity remains central to policies and practices is at the heart of our work. And our policy work focuses primarily on four key areas, the Every Student Succeeds Act, College and Career Pathways, the Digital Divide, and also moving kids successfully, transitioning from high school to higher education. And we believe that higher education is really critical. We know now that over 80% of jobs in, um, in the future that our students will be facing require some type of post-secondary education. And that could mean a community college, it could mean a licensed program, something beyond that high school diploma. Um, and we also have a practice area, which is Future Ready Schools, in which we um, really work diligently with leadership teams from across the country. We're in more than 3,500 school districts, trying to get folks to think about tr using technology as a digital tool and an enhancer to um, instruction. It really relates to what you just shared with us, right? This whole notion that we've got to ensure that technology is a strong component. It's not the be all and end all. It's, uh, think about it as a tool similar to a textbook or whatever. But our kids are digital learners and they're living, they're digital natives and they're living in a world that relies on that. So the more that we can utilize technology, I always say to, to folks, you know, content is a commodity now. You can, I'll find my phone, content is in this, in this phone here. Kids can look up information. We have to teach them how to use that as a tool to ascertain is the information factual or not factual? How can I learn more about it and then move on to the next level? What questions does that surface up in me as I read data about climate control, right? Or climate change. So all of that has to play into bearing on that. And so we work, um, we originally started primarily working on the Hill at the federal level, and now we work at the state level as well. Um, on policies and helping state leaders as well as school districts to think about what policies would, should be enacted or what policies are preventing kids from learning in ways or providing those opportunities, if you will, um, for them to further their education in ways that are meaningful to them. So I, I want to earmark the, um, the Future Ready Schools because I, I want to ask you about that here in a minute. But I want to back up um, and focus on the, the, this word, equity. Um, and because as you know, um, you know, all for ed is, is really built and kind of leaning in to how to create, uh, policy and infrastructure aligned to all of students, right? Every student mm -hmm. in the meantime, um, it's a hard topic to discuss, right? Uh, what has happened to the polarization that we're facing, uh, in terms of politics and, um, it has created um, an unsafe place for educators and leaders to use the word, use the E word, mm -hmm. um, and as they try to navigate around the word equity, just to be able to talk about the concept because of the political misinterpretations that happen. And then before you know it, the effort um, gets hijacked by this other conversation that has nothing to do with academically supporting students. And then therefore, um, attention is swayed from what is most important to sometimes what is least, which is the adults as opposed to the children. So I'm curious, as, as, as you, as All For Ed, um, supports this movement, what are your thoughts around just the leader's difficulty in being able to embrace not just the concept, but the word? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's certainly challenging and it's really, really trying. I've talked to so many leaders across the country who are just like at wit's end. Um, because generally, you know, when we when we're in the we're in a relationship business, we're we're in a business in, that is focused on ensuring that all kids and all should mean all have opportunities, as I mentioned before, that we would want for our own kids. And I feel too often that when we get into the equity conversation, 
it, that people see it as winners and losers. You know, if you give certain groups of kids A and B, then why can't my kid have A, B plus C? And, I, it, and it needs to be an and scenario in which we say, we need to provide A and B so some students can have opportunities that further enrich their lives that are, and their learning experiences that perhaps they're not getting external to school. Um, and your, you know, other kids already have that, so let's build on that as well. We have to figure out this conversation of not looking at it as a deficit, but as an addition, particularly in an increasingly global economy. You know, our kids, we build the future every day as educators, and our kids are facing a future whose parameters are yet unknown. But it's scary if we cannot talk about how do we lift all boats simultaneously, to go to the old um, adage yeah. that people have used. How do we lift them all simultaneously and ensure that people are given the resources, the support, the experiences they need at that moment in time? So, I, you know, I... I I, I'm struggling here because it just this has been an issue that has gone on and on and on. And what hardens my heart or just gives me chills or keeps me awake at night is why can't we focus on kids as a group, kids as individuals of what they need as opposed to looking at it as a loss? What is my kid not going to get? Because other kids have this. And I remember being in scenarios where um, I was w with a school district where we were changing policies for kids to get into advanced placement classes. And there were so many um, barriers that were put up that it became a school within a school. And I was working with this particular school district. And I said, you know, when I go into your high school, I could see primarily white kids, my guess is they would probably be kids who did school well or whose parents had done school well, sitting in your AP classes. And then you have other kids, particularly kids of color, sitting in classes that were not as rigorous. That right there is a huge gap that needs to be closed. And so I started to work with them and thinking about policies and practices. And I remember the school board meeting was just, it was crazy because people, you know, the, they're clearly those skies weren't my skies, so right. to speak. You know, I thought everybody would want kids to have as many opportunities as possible. But there were parents who honestly showed up who felt that if more kids entered into these AP classes, their kids were going to lose out. And I realized at that point that we have to become, as educators, and we're I don't, you don't learn it in principal school and you don't learn it in superintendent school about being great marketers and communications specialists because the narrative that was given out um, fell into a deficit model as opposed to this is what we're going to achieve and this, these are the various uh, pathways that we're going to, how we're going to get there. And it's not taking something away. It's providing opportunities for all kids, right? Yeah. So I think we have to be very, it would be wonderful for even businesses to go into school districts, specialists in marketing and communications, because I think too often we fall into this either or thing, right? And you know, you've been around, probably not as long as I have, but you've been around to even remember the phonics wars, right? It was a phonics oral language, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to why can't it be phonics and whole language, right? Yeah, it was right? an insane discussion. <laughs> exactly. So if we can get rid of the or and put an and in there and then really think what are we all trying to achieve and focus on that goal. Um, but it, it's really hard. I've seen people who just struggle and actually just walk away from roles because equity surfaces up in motions and people where they've got to face certain things. Those are tough conversations. But unless you can have those conversations and create um, what I call courageous conversations, and that's been captured by other people as well, unless you can have those and recognize this is what is a non-negotiable for me. And non-negotiable is making sure that every student who passes through our door is provided with the support and resources they need to choose that future that they so desire. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. we had um, that would help. We've done a lot of work in this, as, as I mentioned previously. So even on our website, we recently with 11 other organizations developed um, a leadership guide called Equity Lessons Learned from Schools in Their Time of COVID-19. It's a long title. Um, but this was really developed to support state leaders in transforming their systems to better serve our most underserved students and to ensure that resources are really used uh, thoughtfully and effectively 
to drive significant change in the education system, which I think COVID has provided us with this opportunity and we shouldn't lose it anymore. It is an opportunity and very yeah. well said. And okay, I, 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 have, I have these two topics I need to get in um, before I, I let you go and you've been generous with us. So the first um, that I wanna lean into is this Future Ready Schools. And I, I say this because it, it actually, I have a connection to that. Uh, over a decade ago, I was in Beaverton School District and we really, really used this work, Future Ready Schools and need, leaned on the model and so forth to do some really, really wonderful things for students. Um, so can you, and by the way, I had this dream, it's a dream right now, that educators, educational leaders um, can somehow find the space, the capacity, can, um, can kind of have the bravery to start to focus on some innovative practices as opposed to, you know, just being uh, bombarded by the day-to-day -day challenges. That's, and somehow if I know I or we can help leaders do that, I think incredible things can happen. Talk to us about Future Ready Schools and what you're seeing or what you envision or hope in terms of the potential for innovation as opposed to you know, um, you know, this, this, this burden leaders are facing. Yeah. You know, I love the way you've posed this and, I, and I'll accept the challenge with you. We could link arms together to provide space and time for individuals to come together. I think that's, that has always been a frustration of mine as a leader, as an active leader in a school district or in a state education agency, or even at the federal level, that how little time we provide to just dream and think about what if, what if, what if we do this, what if we don't, and even to understand if we don't do this, what's going to happen and how do we um, almost hamstring our kids from doing what, what they need to get done for their future, right? So Future Ready Schools um, has been really incredible in terms of helping educators who want to be innovative and ensure, you know, these are people who come together, they want to ensure that every kid from their high school is graduating with the agency and the passion and the skills to be productive and compassionate and responsible citizens. It's just not about, let's get all of our kids to do really well in the state test and then graduate, right? So we provide through Future Ready, we provide uh, free, hence the word free, I'm gonna keep emphasizing that, free tools and resources to district and school leaders um, to really apply uh, evidence-based practices that have been proven and have resulted in engaging students, um, engaging them in their environments, and that really empower robust learning opportunities anytime and anywhere. Um, you can imagine that during COVID, how often we were called upon, people say, can you give us the formula? And it's not just a formula you create like a soup recipe overnight, right? This network really has focused on leadership and appropriately so and teams coming together at free institutes. Hopefully everybody will go on our offer ed website and find the institutes that we're offering in the fall because we help actually help district teams to set a vision for the student outcomes and school experiences that they want. So it's not this, you've got to go home and do these 10 things. There, there's a framework um, and we, share that framework, which is research-based framework, and then school districts, their teams will come together and choose those components of the framework on which to work initially. So we then facilitate those conversations um, in, when they come together and they work within their current system and what's needed to change because maybe what's needed in my district has to do with curriculum instruction and perhaps in your district it really has to do with data security issues and privacy issues and resource equity in terms of digital devices etc so the the districts even though they're all coming together in these regional cohorts and in these state-like models will come together to really craft out what is it that they want for their district long term and then how do they break that down into a series of activities and resource um, development and resource and equity to get to the outcomes that they want for their students. Okay, so um, here's, here's the last question that I have for you. And our members or our listeners are used to me asking this. It is, okay. the, it is the one traditional question I ask. Um, and we say in our community, circles are better than rows. Right, it's kind of a, a line I stole from my pastor, but it does align to the concept of leaders helping leaders in this collaborative environment we want to create. But this is the this this is the one thing we do to push out content, right? It's through leader chats. 
But if you and I were to pretend we're sitting at a round table with leaders and um, you were to give them some pragmatic uh, brass tax advice, like, let me just cut to the chase, elevator speech, this is what I recommend you think about or you lean on or you focus, uh, you focus on. What, what would your, be your, your advice for educational leaders right now? Um, I'm going to go with one I hadn't mentioned before, and then I'm going to repeat two that I shared before. The first one is that uh, tap into students far more readily. Um, the power of student agency is absolutely remarkable. But what I find nationwide is that too often people will uh, allow students to be engaged when they already do school well. So I think back to when we were um, transforming our comprehensive high school and our high school principal sent me the names of 25 students all of whom did school well, they were all successful. And I rejected 24 of those 25 names. And the reason I did that was because though the school, while they could have extended more for those students, I wanted to find out why is that football player just barely making the GPA to be on the football team? Why is that one student walking out of school? Why is that kid not showing up? Why is that other student disrupting class? I needed to find out what school was not working. And so often, and it was hard when we brought kids into a sea of uh, community members as well, adults, because they didn't, we, we had to figure out a way for adults to listen to students and most importantly, to, to engage them in ways that are very, very difficult, right? Because so often I, I see school districts say, oh, we have a student on our, um, on our school board. Really? So they, do they even have a vote? And if they don't, very few have votes. But even if they have a vote, they're one of what, seven or eight or nine people, or 11 yeah, people. Yeah, right. And, and who's their constituents? This, the kids, right? The kids may not, they may be the National Honor Society chairperson, which is a great thing, sure. not downplaying it, but they're not necessarily talking or relating to that student who struggles to come to class on time because of life circumstances, right? So we have to figure out student agency. And I'm particularly interested in this at the high school level, because when you think about it, we this boggles my mind. We treat almost graduating kids, 17 years old, 18 years old, like we do the 13-year-olds walking in, or 14-year-olds walking into high school. That's such a huge gap of development between the two. But our high school, if it's a closed campus, it's closed for all. That doesn't prepare kids <laughs> to take responsibility for their own learning. So a real focus on true student engagement, true student agency is critical. Another one is just constantly to ask yourself um, whether or not the school is good enough for your own kid. I mentioned that before. Is it okay for my son or my grandson? Because it's unacceptable to allow some schools to be okay for other people's kids, but not our own, right? I, I remember walking into a school in a really large city when I was at the U.S. Department of Ed, and these fan, these uh, uh, people at the, at the school district level, the district level, not at the building level, told me how much this high school had been working on parent engagement to get parents in and to get families in, and they had a family center. And I remember running up the stairs to that school, and there was a sign on the door, I kid you not, it said family center hours, 3 to 4 p.m. I was like, well, what were they before? Nothing? You know, you know. It, like we have to stop and think of like how do we create that school as the center of our community and what roadblocks have we accepted without really pushing back on them? What roadblocks have we put up for family engagement? What roadblocks for kids, etc.? cetera? Um, and then also to rethink what's the mission of your school. When people ask me, as I mentioned before, what's the purpose of education? It's to give kids hope. So when I was a superintendent, we had these eight words that we used, which were every student, every day, some success, some way. That's our challenge. And hope can breathe life into that foundational aspiration. Every student, every day, some success, some way. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard when you have so much on the plate. Every educator has so much on the plate. But relationships matter more than anything else, as we've talked about earlier in this conversation. Relationships matter. And we have to be able to put ourselves, our head on the pillows at night and say, I gave them hope today. And to be able to step back and say, I'm helping to build that future one student at a time. Deb, you, um, after this uh, really esteemed career and your, your current stellar work that All for Ed is doing, um, over this, this, this past time, just sitting with me, 
um, I want you to know that you have, have brought an incredible body of knowledge to the table. Um, that is, number one, helps helps me. It provides me hope. It creates challenge for me as an educator or one trying to influence other leaders. But um, our leaders listening and those that will see this content as well as when we push this out to uh, other people via the podcast, we're so thankful that we're able to um, grab some of your experience and some of your exposure um, and, and hear your your dedication but your passion to support students uh just it just it's it kind of slaps you it's it's amazing and so i want to say thank you for the time it's been wonderful thank you and always remember we have to lead with our hearts we we have a lot of book skills we've learned in superintendent school leadership councils right but we have to lead with our hearts because that's what kids rely on us to do every day to make the best decisions for them at this moment in time and uh, just a little bit of a thing uh, kids don't ask if we're democrat or republican they really don't. They want us, again, to make the best decisions we have for them at that moment in time. And kids cannot wait for one more white paper report to be published. We know what to do. We have to have a sense of urgency, but it's our hearts that will fuel that. And I, I feel just in the times we've spoken prior to even this chat, Jeff, I feel like you have the heart of a leader. And I want to thank you for sharing that journey with me and with oh. leading with your heart as well. By all means, and we'll we'll talk in the future about how we can help educational leaders get out of that tyranny of the urgent that is dominating their day, find a way for them to think um, and create an opportunity for them to actually consider innovations in the future. So thank you so much, Deb. Uh, we I really appreciate that. you. Thank you. And thanks to everybody who's listening. Thank you for your passion and your commitment to the mission of getting all kids to their future of their choice. By all means. Thank you, thank Deb. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, what can I say? Um, that was what we hoped for. Um, Deb Delisle has had this incredible career and she's just still pushing. And she pushes me, and I know that she's pushing you as well. And uh, we will provide more information about All for Ed and Deb Delisle and her work. And in the meantime, educators, leaders, thank you for the noble work that you do. Be well. <laughs>